as y'all open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If anybody was sitting near my family, that was the, Dad, are you preaching? That's wonderful. It's a blessing to be with you this morning, especially to open God's Word for us. I'm going to be reading all of 2 Timothy chapter 2 to get into the section that we're in this morning, which is verse 14 to 19. So please hear and focus our minds on God's Word this morning for us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through, 4, or 1 through 19. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let, the Lord, sorry, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. You have revealed your truth in Scripture, and now our calling, our joy, our opportunity this morning is to rightly handle your word of truth. So as we do that, we pray the only way that it is to be effective for the hearing is that the Holy Spirit will be at work in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives to impress these words upon us, each and every one of us. So we pray that your mighty spirit would be at work here through my humble words, in Jesus' name, amen. So as Robert has been preaching through Romans chapter 14 and talking about what is the important dis- difference is those disputable items, the, the adiaphora, the things that we can have differing opinions because scripture is not clear. As God would have it in his wonderful scheduling of all things church-related, we happen to be Timothy, or sorry, Timothy, 
Stephen, thank you, this wonderful gentleman, we happen to be going through the, the book, Paul's letter to Timothy, of 2 Timothy, and these two passages have lined up. So Romans 14 is talking about what's not required of Scripture, the minors of Scripture, those things we can have differing opinions and how we deal with that well. We love the brotherhood. We care for one another. We listen to opinions and hold that open-handedly. Paul here is dealing with Timothy in those major items, the the things that the Scripture is clear on that we don't get to mess with, we don't get to have differing opinions on, here's the truth and this is how it needs to go for us. And while he's telling us that there are those important things that we must major correctly on, he's also saying the way that we handle that, the way that we have those discussions is also very important. Not just the content of what we say, but the method that we go about coming alongside a brother and being gracious to one another. Now, if I'm honest with y'all, there's a couple times in the last many weeks where I've said, I, I just want a list. Can I just get a list of all the majors that I can make sure I'm not messing up these and just kind of get a list of some of the other things that we can have differing opinions on? That way we won't, you know, we'll be clear, we won't mess these up, I'll check these off. And the more I thought about it in two different directions, one, throughout history, we've tried this. We've tried making lists of different things. Throughout church history, we've done this, right? We've said, oh, here's the in crowd, there's the out group. Here's what we're going to stand on. There's what we can, uh, you know, kind of discuss about, have different opinions on. E- even the most recent one, the fundamental list of 1910 was, go look it up, it's fascinating. And it started off as a really nice five core doctrines, here's what we all agree we who call ourselves Christians or evangelicals. And then it kind of added into six different volumes and it it spiraled into all these other things and different opinions on how we should major. Some of these are more major and others, it's hard. Then I realized also, God's word is not intended to be a list. He gives us clearly what is major, what is most important, what is fundamental in the truths of the gospel But the way that he unfolds that is in a story of his covenant faithfulness to his covenant people. That's where we find ourselves. So we've got to push back against the don't go home this afternoon and crank out a list of the five things that we have to know as believers. And also don't miss that we have what is important and it's plainly communicated to us when we're reading it for what it is. That gets us where we need to see that I still need to apply the grace of God while being anchored to the truth of God's word. We still need that. There's never going to be a point in in, in any of our lives for the rest of eternity where this truth isn't going to stand and I'm not going to constantly need to and get to come back to God's word to learn more, to be shaped more, and to enjoy more of who God is in his revealed word. That's a beautiful thing. But let me dive in. If I can apologize for a second, on your bulletin, I'm going to change the title. The more I thought about this, and by the way, pastors are preparing sermons up until like six seconds ago. There's stuff spinning. But this one took about, this was like a little bit in Friday after the the bulletins were printed. I'm thinking... To be approved, not ashamed, really has the wrong, it's the focus area to the wrong part. 
this passage is not about the worker. The worker is approved, not ashamed. That's Timothy, or that's the elders in the, the church in Ephesus, or that's you and I today. The, the focus of this passage, the central core truth of this, is rightly handling the Word of God. So scratch out the title is not approved, not ashamed. Scratch it out. It's a, it's a good phrase, you know, it's wonderful. A alliteration, yay. But it's rightly handling the Word of God. And so our three points this morning are remembering to remind, then second, rightly handling the Word of God, and then third, that God's firm foundation stands. And first, I'm going to bounce from verse 14 through verses 16, 17, and 18, because those are talking about what we need to be reminded about in God's Word, what do we do with God's Word, and who we need to remind The play on word I'm trying to get at with remembering to remind is not that I need to set myself a reminder on my phone so that every eight seconds I'm reminded that, no. The point of what Paul is telling Timothy here multiple times through this passage, going back to 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, now remember. And then again in 2.2, he says, remember. And here in 2.8 again, what we just read, he's saying, remember. So that when the very first word in verse 14, remind them these things, what is he being told to remind these people? What's the them there? It's the group of elders, the other elders in the church of Ephesus that this young pastor Timothy has been pouring his life into. What is he supposed to remind them? The exact same thing that Paul just reminded him. It's the same core of remind yourself, remember yourself the gospel. So when he anchors this to the young Timothy, remind them, remind this group of elders, remind them what you just yourself remembered. And this is how this pattern goes over and over. We can see this pattern. We could spend hours upon hours unpacking all the time in Old Testament history where the people of God are are reminded, remember who God was and how he just showed up. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Uh, David, prophets, come in umpteen different ways with word pictures and life examples and proof on the ground. Remember who God is and what he's done for you. And then go and remind others that might not see that as clearly. So what are these things that Paul's telling Timothy to remember and then go and remind this group of elders and the whole entire church? He's that these things is the very core of the gospel. Back in uh, verse 8 of chapter 2, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Don't miss that the very thing he's reminding Timothy to remind the elders is the very issue that Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth on. Down in verse 18, what are they saying? What's their beef? What's their problem? Where are they missing the truth of the gospel? They're saying that the resurrection already happened. Huh? Here's the crazy thing. They're actually getting the doctrine half right. Yes, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Ain't no dispute in that. Paul would be off his rocker if he's trying to prove them otherwise. Because half of the people in that congregation are living witnesses. Either they know somebody or they were there themselves in that area. They've seen that happen. 
But the problem, the way that Hymenaeus and Philetus are swerving from the truth is they're saying the resurrection has already happened. So we don't have to live certain ways. We don't have to live a godly life expecting a second coming and the resurrection of the body. There's a lot of different spin-offs we could take there. I just want to highlight that is the very thing that Timothy is being reminded, the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ, remember him, risen from the dead, that's the error that these two have swerved on. And it's leading to the upsetting of the faith. That's a way gentle translation of that word, by the way. Upsetting, that's like, yeah, okay, I lost a couple Legos and now I can't build my Lego set. I'm a little upset. Okay, that's my son's version. Or you can imagine some other ones that might have happened this week. I'm a little upset because of A and B. Upsetting, that's, it's overturning or destroy. It's the same word when Jesus enters the temple and he overturns the tables of the money collectors. He's not a little upset. He's righteously angry. Don't miss that. But he's overturning tables. They're overturning the faith by getting a really important major core doctrine a little bit wrong. Now, the problem that that Paul has driven home at Ephesus is a really personal problem for him. Don't miss this as well. And we've kind of hinted at that, the ways that we've come back to the story that Acts gives us, the story that Paul weaves throughout all of his letters, especially those that are intentionally ascribed to both Paul and Timothy. Half of his letters, uh, Corinthians, Thessalonians, and especially this letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, that's where he planted. He spent three years planting this church in Ephesus. And now Timothy, who spent 15 years with Paul, learning from him, being his disciple, being poured into both his, his personality shaped by the gospel, but also his doctrinal thinking and his living. So the problem is Ephesus, it has time and time again missed the core doctrines and swerved from the truth. You can look back in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 18, there's this uh, false teaching that's coming from within. It's con- characterized by a concern with fables or myth in 2 Timothy 4.4 4 and 1 Timothy 1.4 with genealogies in 1 Timothy 1.4. I'm going too fast, but you can watch the video later. There's quarrels about words in 2 Timothy 2.14 tw- uh, in verse 23 in 1 Timothy 6.4 and there's controversies that are, keep coming up and they're not minor things. There's a missing of knowledge. There's an attempt to try to get some secret or special knowledge. And there's meaningless talk and godless chatter. We hear that phrase. They're quarreling about words. There's irreverent babble in verse 16. There's a lot of this going on, and people aren't stopping. And it's not the minor disputable issues that we can have different opinions and love one another about. It's major gospel-focused doctrines. Why is this such a problem? Because Paul is reminding Timothy that he has the authority, he must exercise the authority to rightly handle the word of truth. And he has to charge his elders. It's the second part of verse 14. Charge them, charge your leaders, charge the people in your congregations before God, this ain't a small deal, not to quarrel about words. 
So they need to root out this heresy, these issues of fundamental biblical truths, and be sure not to mishandle anything that's on a primary, first-tier level issue of the gospel. Or don't ignore the way that you're talking about secondary, uh, second-tier issues, because those also can destroy the faith of people in your own flock. In other words, if I can boil all of that down, the issue of our words, catch this. The word word is logos. It's in verse 14. It's again in the end of verse 15 that that we're rightly handling the word, the logos of truth. It's also the problem of that is in verse 17. Their talk, that's their words, their logos, will spread like gangrene. When it's used incorrectly, when we're taking a primary doctrine and incorrectly communicating that, that's wrong. And then again, they're saying in verse 18, saying that the resurrection has already happened, that saying is their logos. What Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy is that the issues of words come in what we say, whether they're true or false. It comes in how we say it, whether we're quarreling or involved in irreverent babble, verse 14 and 16, and especially, thirdly, why we say those words. Paul says it ruins the hearers. Who are the hearers? Not just the ones listening. People are hearing themselves talk too. It's ruining their faith as well. Hymenaeus, Philetus, Hymenaeus is described as in the first letter to Timothy, he's one who was handed over to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. Yikes. That's a heavy warning. That's ruining him as a speaker of wrong, false words, but also as a hearer of what he keeps babbling about. So we have to be careful in what we say, how we say it, and why we say it. If I can just plug a little application right here. This is heavy, and it should be, because it's major doctrinal issues that will destroy the faith of some. Ask ourselves, how many of our conversations start or end up on issues that are not even, we might not even call them minor. We call them like way unimportant. How many of our conversations talk, circle around what is really fundamental and major in order to say what is true to those we care about, how we say it is true, and why we're saying that to build each other up, to confirm, to equip, to encourage, to strengthen the faith in some. That's the use of God's word. That's what it means to rightly handle it. And really personally, because what we're doing right now is part of this. I'm going to get to that in a second. How much of what we hear that is major and important do we take in and turn into a, a critique That TV show a couple years ago, I don't know if it's still on, American Idol. What was the huge issue that it turned everyone viewing into? We all turned into little Simon Cowles. We were all thrilled with not just sitting and enjoying some amazing singers. 
we were thrilled with being able to critique them in like three seconds. Oh, you hit that first note, it was flat. No, no, you're done. Right. Okay, I apologize for sarcasm. Please don't let your hearts critique the delivery. Please don't let your minds uh, nuance everything so specifically that you don't hear, that you're not anchored in the word of truth. I would love to hear out of a, a, anything that we're involved in, the teacher was fabulous. That's always encouraging. Please don't mishear me. But how is the teacher fabulous in rightly handling the word of truth? If I come out of a Sunday school lesson, if I come out of a Bible study, if, if I come out of, dare I say it, a sermon, and I'm thrilled that that was the best sermon I've ever heard, and nothing at all changes in my heart from that minute forward, it's not rightly, I, we haven't done our jobs. We, all of us, me, heavy responsibility to rightly handle the word of God. Y'all, heavy responsibility to rightly handle the word of God. If I turn my, tune my hearing to be critiquing, oh, that was really good. We've missed We've missed the value. Now, what do we do with this? Look at verse 15. We are, Paul says to Timothy, and by extension, he says to the church, we are church-tested and God-approved. Y'all remember those, uh, I don't know if it's still a cereal brand, Kicks, the cereal that was like, uh, Rice Krispie Treats on steroids with a corn flavor rather than rice. Yeah, yeah, okay. Their slogan was kid tested. Y'all remember it? Mother approved. As in, the kids liked it because it had this sweet corn flavor. And the parents liked it, the mothers especially. Mothers liked it because it was healthy. I don't know how they got healthy into that because it's like a puffed up corn thing. But it was the kids liked it for one reason, and the parents liked it for an additional beneficial reason. This is what Paul's saying. You are going to be tested, Timothy. Y'all in this congregation are tested. But don't miss. The testing is not hinging. It's not the thing that your salvation is hinged upon. Please don't misunderstand that. This is talking to a congregation presuming that the hearers and the, the receivers of God's word are those who are saved. And rightly handling, that's not the level of if you're saved or not. The church is being tested, though, but you're being approved. You're being uh, saw, seen to be purified based on how you're handling the word of God. You're church tested, but you're stamped approved by God based on you, as a worker, how you're rightly handling the Word of God. Let me lean into this. In the very first phrase in verse 15, Paul writes, do your best to present yourself. Hopefully that rings some bells for us that have just gone through Romans, specifically Romans chapter 12. Right in the first verse, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. 
that phrase to present your bodies is not to kind of to show up and make sure you, you know, you're iron today. It's like, okay, I'm here, I'm present. No, no, no. It's to, to zealously, to eagerly prepare your hearts and your life, eagerly to get there, ready for things to happen. That's the way that we can ask ourselves, whose approval am I seeking here? It's God's. He's the one that sets my standard. He's the one that requires obedience, not the results. And he judges my heart along the way. Y'all, here's the good news, that, that God's approval has been put on you. For there is now no condemnation for those of, of us who are in Christ Jesus. That we're not worried about judging. We're worried about approval. So, so the test is coming. The, the testing is coming. There will be more tests. I'm not just speaking as a teacher, like you're not going to get a Scantron bubble form or any you know, online test when you leave this building. There will be tests. Please don't mistake that. You will have tests. You will have tests in the, de- the decisions you make. You will have tests in the conversations. You will have tests whether you want to uh, confirm and, and approve of something somebody's chatting with you about, whether it's out in the hallway or at lunch or later on with your family or a coworker on Monday or whatever this week. There will be tests. But guess what? It's an open book test. Please dive in and rightly handle the word of truth. If I can give an example, back when I was teaching eighth grade, uh, I got to teach Bible, and I would tell them all the time that there's going to be a test, but here's the, here's the good news. It's going to be in five or 10 or 20 years when you're making some decision, like what college to go to or what spouse to marry or what your major should be or what job you should take. Or should you live with your parents? Or should you move out on your own? Like all of those things are going to be little tests to see how God's truth has been anchored time and time again. One of the best examples I saw of this was when I was teaching eighth grade and we would partner up with a science teacher who was doing the most crazy wild uh, science project, which was make boats out of cardboard. Anybody did that before? Like trying to float in cardboard? Okay. Don Pierce, that's awesome. Thank you. He rescues people that make boats out of scarp. No, I'm shook. <laughs> Part of the assignment would be to gather your materials, and you would, you would see these kids that were like thrilled, like, I got 63 cereal boxes. I'm going to duct tape them together. It's going to be amazing. We're like, that's going to be horrible. It's going to shred. And then some people are like, I got this one. We got a new garage, a new refrigerator in our garage, and you should see the refrigerator box is like eight feet by four feet, and I'm just going to step in it and sail to glory across the pool. We're like, yeah, it's right, engineering. You don't have to be an engineering major to figure out that one's going to be a, a wet one. And then we've got kids that are thinking through. There's different densities of cardboard. And if you kind of line them up and tape them overlapping so that there's not seams that are going to then seep through water like sieves. And then if you get those sides too high, you're not going to be able to paddle anything. But if you get them too low, it's going to tip. And you're going to... Like there's kids that are thinking through this. And the amazing part about that assignment was the test was building the boat in the class. You're done. You're past. You're A+. Plus. Way to go. The fun... The being approved, and maybe some of that came with a little bit of trash talking, all those things that eighth grader likes to do, right? The, the fun part was putting it in the water 
actually trusting while you got into it, and then seeing how fast you could go down the pool. And the fun thing was everybody was going to get wet. It's not a matter of like how much we're going to get wet. It's, yeah, you're going to be wet. Let's just have fun enjoying the product that you just made. That's what we're kind of talking about. You've been, appro- you've been justified. And now part of your walk to be sanctified is how we take this, see ourselves woven into the rich stories of God's covenant faithfulness, and live life getting to enjoy what he's built us to be in, this community, this body of believers. That's a, a beautiful open book test. If you, if you don't, have you ever, ever gotten to see the cardboard boat races? Spend maybe three seconds Googling it and see some of the funny videos and then say, okay, maybe that illustration worked or maybe it didn't. And then critique me later, that's fine. But getting back to this, that's how we are approved. We are to eagerly present ourselves to be approved in that way. But the worker that has no need to be ashamed, the regret, the feeling of what if or guilt or shame or past anything is not coming to bear on that moment. But they're rightly handling the word of truth. And Paul can say this significantly to Timothy because he's seen the word of God go forth. He says, while he's a prisoner in chains, the word is not bound. It's not limited. It's, it's still being handled and being proclaimed. It's almost as if Paul really believes in Isaiah 55, 11. Remember that section where God says, my word will accomplish that for which I've sent it. It will not return to me void. It won't come back empty saying, whoops, missed it. Because God sends it out not only as a written word inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he sends it out to his believers who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit to have those truths anchored in their hearts and minds. Now let me just spend a second breaking apart that really important phrase. This is the core of this sermon. If you miss everything else, if my illustrations don't land on whatever that's trying to explain, then hear this. To rightly handle the word of truth is really significant. So where do we go with that? First, we need to see that there's the word. We all have words. We all have words that we think mean something. We all have different experiences and different uh, definitions that we intend with those words. Some of the problems we're seeing today is we all like to use words. Many of us use words with different dictionaries. We're coming, especially when we see that out in the culture, we have so many different ways we'll use so many different things to have the word of truth, to have it anchored in absolute eternal truth that is God-revealed, not man uh, uh, agreed upon, but that's God-revealed. That's where we need to go to the word. So what is this word of truth that Paul's anchoring for Timothy? It's specifically, he says in 2 Timothy 2.8, that the message, Paul's message that is the gospel or in 2 Timothy 1.8, he says it's the testimony of our Lord, the, the witness that God sent Jesus, and this is who Jesus is and what he's done. Or in uh, Colossians 1.5 and Ephesians 1.15, he, he calls it the word of truth. It's directly correlated to the gospel or the gospel of your salvation, 
We, we can't miss. That's the word of truth he's talking about. So how does the gospel, the word of truth, play out? It needs to be handled. But we're all okay with handling something. I can mishandle something. That doesn't help. I need to be rightly handling this word of truth. What does that look like? To rightly handle that phrase is literally a, a description of uh, cutting straight. There's a lot of different ways that that could look. The one that I think is the clearest and the most helpful is either through uh, somebody who's pa- making a path. Like if you're cutting a path from here across the other side of the county, it's not going to be a perfectly laser-sighted l- line, right? Unless you're mowing that front yard out there. With, that's incredible. That's a straight line. But if you're cutting a couple of miles through the woods, it's going to zigzag a little bit, but you're cutting a straight path to where you're going. Or in the terms of the Old Testament, it might be like as a farmer who's trying to plow a furrow. And they know the better they can get that furrow straight, the better it's going to be for all the other, for the people laying the seeds and for the people fertilizing or weeding or reaping, all of that. I think what Paul has in mind here is the same that we've heard when we're studying Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he's going to do what? He's going to make your path arrow straight because your heart's trust is there, and it's informed by the word of truth. To contrast this, in Acts 13, 10, we get this character, Illumis, who was guilty, quote, of perverting the straight path of the Lord. He's making them windy. He's trying to complicate things. He's trying to add in other stuff. Yeah, that's great that you do this, but you also have to do this over here. We see that all over the place. So what does it mean to rightly handle the word of God, to take the word of truth, to handle it as the Bible handles it? That that shouldn't be a, a... hard, challenging, difficult thing. We have plenty of examples. And what the Word gives us is the opportunities that we have described as the means of grace, historically been taught that we come to the preaching, the sacraments, and the prayer. We come as a community. We gather around and we get to engage with God's words on so many different levels, whether it's Sunday school or small groups or Bible studies or men's and women's events, and all these things, we get to hear one another rightly handle the word of truth. And that shapes us so that we will, we will be discipled and the Holy Spirit will anchor that truth and then send us to go and do likewise. That's a beautiful thing. So to rightly handle God's word leads me, leads us by the power of the Holy Spirit to cut between what Hebrews 4.12 calls cutting between soul and spirit, right? Dividing bone and marrow. It cuts right in there. It shows me where the truth is and where I need to lead straight, whether it's repenting or believing and where to obey moving forward. If I can use one quote from Scott Sauls, he says, if reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, I am not reading the Bible correctly. 
if reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others, to point the finger to others, to look and critique others more than I look and critique myself, not reading the Bible correctly. Again, if we can take, mathematically speaking, Paul is reminding Timothy three times, remember, 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 then here, remind them. Timothy, you need to have this sinking into your heart three times as much as you're sharing this with anybody else. That's a heavy proportion. So when the gospel people, when, when our people, our community leaders and laity are rightly handling the word, it, it corrects both the substance, the word of truth, and the process, how we go about relating to one another Maybe when we don't agree on some of the minors, but especially when we don't agree on these majors, on something like the resurrection, so that we can repent and believe more, so that the Holy Spirit will confirm the work that he begun in us and be faithful to complete it, so that in the midst of conviction, we can have fruit. In the midst of conflict, we can have hope. In the midst of sorrow, there can be joy. In the midst of despair, there can be faithfulness. If I can quote one other commentator, he asked, what should Christians do in the light of the presence of false teaching? What did Paul encourage Timothy to do here? He said they should avoid it, avoid the irreverent empty speech or the babbling irreverent babble. They should stay on the path of truth. They should stay to what's revealed in Holy Scripture. And then they should do one more thing. They should avoid Despair. Despair turns us into little walking agnostics where we know there's some truth there, but I'm not sure I can really comprehend or understand or, un- or apply it to what is real in life. I'm not sure. That can lead us to some despair. Please hear. Timothy is hearing from Paul. Paul is sitting in chains, uncertain that he's going to live another day. He has absolute hope. No despair at this moment in his life. And Timothy is going to end up in jail as well. We don't know what happened to him after that, but he had 100% certainty that he was going to be tested, yet found, approved. So where where do we go with this? Paul reminds us of the comforting truth that God's solid foundation stands we get that mess that there's those who quarrel about words and those who talk irreverent babble and it's going to spread like gangrene. That is disgusting. Especially if you've ever ever seen that firsthand. I'm not going to describe it because some of you all are anticipating lunch already. It's, yeah, yuck. That's how bad this gossip, this rumor mill, this irreverent babble can be. It's overturning or destroying the faith of some. But here's Paul's encouragement. Guess what, Timothy? Guess what, church? God's firm foundation stands. That's not going to undermine. That's not going to ruin. That's not going to destroy what God has established. How can he be so certain? Because what the foundation is anchored in God. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, he says in verse 19, What's a seal? A seal is a confirmation. It's a sign that there's some ownership going on here. This is mine, stamped the king or queen when they 
press that seal into the letter. This is my word that's going on here. The foundation of God is his word, the word made flesh, the cornerstone of our faith. And what did God, what did God in Christ do? He anchored that cornerstone in the lives of his disciples. So the glue that holds them together, the glue of the foundation of our faith is that we're sticking and rightly handling the word of truth. Here's the beautiful thing. That when the word is applied by the Spirit to our hearts and lives to teach us both about God's preservation of his people, knowing who are genuine, who are false, what is minor and what is major, it's God's responsibility to keep intact what he has already started to build. That's the verse that he gives us, that Paul quotes some really heavy passages from Numbers. Go check this out, y'all, while you're doing your afternoon activities. Numbers chapter 16, verses 5. This is when Korah rebels against Moses and Aaron. It's a mess. And what does God's foundation mean? that he knows who his people are, that the Lord knows those who are his. How is this encouraging in the slightest bit to Timothy? Timothy's issue is, I'm in a church plant, Paul, that you started that I've been serving with for years and years and years, and people are off wandering about this myth that the resurrection has already happened and life now doesn't matter anymore. How does this help me, Paul? How does the the knowing that the foundation of the Lord stands and that the Lord knows who are his? This isn't just some big pie in the sky. Well, just remind yourself that election is still working, that God predestined those who he knows. It's much better than that. Because in the midst of Korah's rebellion, Moses' reaction is not to rise up, to bow up, and be like, you don't know. You just need to go read your stuff again. Moses' reaction is he falls on his knees and he says, Lord, have mercy on your people. Remind them of the core of your covenant faithfulness. And then he tells the people to to back away. Back off. Because there's about to be some mess going down. And what happens to Korah? The earth literally opens up. And Korah and those who followed him not only have their faith upset, the very earth swallows them down to Sheol, it says. Why is that important for Timothy to apply to his congregation? Because the second part, the second part of the seal, Paul knowing that a witness stands on the basis of two testimonies, here gives us a second verse. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord do what? Rest because they're golden? Depart from iniquity, turn away from it, repent from it, and turn towards joy and truth and the gospel. One commentator says this, the the inscription, the command, this is let everyone, this isn't just a, it would be nice if you did, or you might could do this on the weekends. This is let everyone, command everyone. He says, not only to depart from immorality, but also from the error that contradicts the truth and leads to such immorality. Here's what Paul is telling Timothy. The problem of living the life this way, it's not a problem just because of the bad results. 
It's a problem because your heart has been shaped by a, in, a falsehood that is shaping your heart, that is leading to bad results. So correct the truth. Anchor the truth back in God's word. If I can give maybe an example to us in the room who are parents, or grandparents even. I've heard this a few times, and not just here, so this is not directed at any one individual, but I've heard people say, I want to be a part of a church where they have strong morals, where they teach our kids what is right. 100% agree. But why? Why is that important? This command is not just depart from iniquity because there's mayhem to come. It's not just stop sinning because there's judgment. It's not just live a moral life because things will go better for you that way. If there's any value in teaching our kids what is moral and right and true and good, it's not just because there's a good result. It's because the gospel It's because knowing the person and work of Jesus Christ will change your whole entire being. It'll shape you from the inside out. Having right doctrine sink down to right desires and hearts will mean that living rightly, not just when it's convenient, not just when my 18 friends are doing the same thing and it's all good for all of us, but when the world says you're bonkers, you're crazy, or even worse, you're a bigot, then it's going to matter. Because the Lord sees those who are his, and he knows their hearts, and he knows that their minds are anchored in the truth, in the word of truth. And it won't always be easy, because there will be tests that refine us, but they'll be sources of God's approval. So if you're here as a parent, if you're here as a grandparent, please continue to come because your kids are getting good teaching. They're getting what to do that's right. But it's not what to do that's right that will give you a result-oriented life. This is not behavior modification for happy lives. This is gospel and heart change for eternity. So that for the rest of eternity, our joy can come in knowing the truth, seeing the word of truth shape our minds, anchor our hearts, and let us enjoy what God has for us. That way, the moral living, the good, right things that we'll be doing are joys and not burdens. So if I can ask a few application questions. What, what, what way am I handling my words? We're all, we all have words. We all speak. We all listen. We all hear. Are my words anchored in the word of truth? Are they seeking to build up or to tear down? Am I trying to do what's right and convincing myself or justifying to myself or rationalizing or doing whatever just works, that it's okay, it's, it's good enough, I'm coping, I'm getting through, maintaining a status, maybe it's in a relationship or at work or it just keeps me going on an even keel. I'm working hard during the week and I'm coping on the weekends and it's okay. Or am I looking to God? Am I looking to the word of truth and having his word so 
shape my mind, transform my thoughts. Every single day, yes, when hard experiences come, yes, when challenges and hard decisions happen, yes, when relationships are hurting and broken, yes, when bosses say hard things at work, yes to all those, but day in, day out, am I anchored in the story of God's covenant faithfulness to his people and to me in the gospel? That my trust is in the Lord and he's the one making my path straight. Am I looking to the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shape me so much day in and day out that in five or 10 or 20 years when the test comes and your kids look up to you and they say, Dad, you remember when you yelled at me? That stung. And you say, son, please don't remember that. Please remember three minutes later when I came weeping to you and said, forgive me. Not because it had a bad result. Forgive me for taking out my anger and aggression on you. Or remember that moment that you had in that hard decision? I'm not sure which way I should go. Lord, let this path be your path. That's when the test is going to come. Let it be an open book test for our hearts to see the clear path of the wise and true God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Pray this morning as we looked what it means to rightly handle your word of truth, that it would sink deeper into our hearts and our habits, our minds, our attitudes, and especially our words. Lord, turn us from quarrels, from irreverent babble. Forgive us if that's a pattern that we've gotten into and help us to speak the words of truth that will not upset the faith of some, but will encourage the faith of all who hear us. Starting with our own house, our relationships, our neighbors, our coworkers, that everyone who hears us may hear your truth, that we can major on the majors in what we say, how we say it, and why we say it, and that we can have brotherly and sisterly love on the minors so that your truth can be proclaimed, your gospel can be heard, and your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, can be adored worshiped and enjoyed now and to the end of eternity. I pray this for each one of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.